back, everybody, to another great edition of Running Into the Fog. Well, we'll let you be the judge of how great it is. And, uh, you know, you won't be able to tell us that for a little while. We're recording this episode uh, number 27 of Running Into the Fog on October the 11th of 2021. Brother Eric Johnson uh, here today. Eric, welcome. Eric, morning. Always, always awesome. Doing really well today. Doing really well. Although I'm having to change my mindset getting this particular podcast episode going because for the first time in the 27 episodes we recorded, we have two guys named Eric on the podcast. Uh, our good friend, Eric Garland, who we've known forever. Eric Garland, welcome to Running Into the Fog. Thanks Hello. For Glad are, to be here. We're excited you're here with us today, brother. Garland. Um, you guys uh, go way back to the late 90s uh, or so. You know, there was some debate, and I'll let you guys, you know, battle that out in your various uh, testimonies over who met who first and who approached who first. And we expect actually this podcast to go live around Valentine's Day of 2022, uh, right around the 15th of February. So we're going to call this our Valentine's podcast with two guys named Eric and their little brother, Derek. And uh, we ought to have a really great conversation today, guys. So Eric, Eric, and my... Eric, my brother's Eric, Eric and Derek, I guess. <laughs> New heart. That won't, that won't get confusing at all, right? Um, Eric Garland, you're manage, excuse me, executive director of competitive futures. Um, for our listeners at home, give us a little bit of insight into uh, how you got your start in the uh, competitive futuring game. And, uh, you know, what uh, life has been like uh, for you in that realm over the last couple of decades plus since you uh, got into our space? Well, um, you know, no matter uh, how my job title changes over over the years, I refer to myself as an intelligence analyst. And uh, I got my start in the world of competitive, uh, world of straight up kind of classical competitive intelligence as a, an operative and analyst. Um, collecting information on competitors and taking that back uh, to the office and analyzing it to figure out what people's competitors were up to, to tell them what to do. It sounds almost charming and, uh, and, and sweet and simple. You know, it's the old, we, we had the Porteria, the Michael Porter, Porterian physics of the universe. There are entrance uh, into market spaces that are somewhat well-defined and, you know, there's, uh, customers and, you know, the government plays a certain role, uh, but you know, it's a regulation. There's not that many full, uh, monopolies out there. So there are many competitors and then you help one competitor understand the others. And, uh, that was my, I started in 1997 in that, uh, in that role. And I've never really stopped. I've just gotten onto weirder questions. Um, I now consider myself a, you know, a strategic analyst where I look at, you know, the, I still use the intelligence methodology to get at all that stuff. Um, uh, I still ask, uh, you know, what don't I know out there? What's published? What are other people reading and what's really going on? So I still use human intelligence methodology for that. Or as I have a t-shirt printed up, Humint, we just ask the guy. Very, very complicated methodology. Um, but, you know, that now gets applied to um, the questions of, of nation states and the shape of markets and democracy and the rule of law and all sorts of stuff like that, which uh, I got 
In the late 90s, uh, in 1999, I moved on to Washington, D.C. and started working for a futurist by the name of Joe Coates, um, who was a futurist for the U.S. Congress and the Pentagon and uh, corporations and governments around the world and started asking questions about, and instead of the next several quarters um, or five-year strategic plan, we only specialized in five to 20-year planning and I think I was the only person in that niche of future studies who realized like, wait a minute, the same competitor or the same clients for competitive intelligence and, the, and futures are the same because I moved from a competitive intelligence firm to a futures think tank. And sometimes it wasn't just the same company. It was the same client. It was the same dude that I had just been doing another project for on the future of gas stations and retail operations at these downstream. And then we're looking at the future of petroleum and energy writ large for the hydrogen economy, same dude serving the same decision makers. And I went, wait, these people should be talking. And so that's, I kind of came up with a notion I called future intelligence, which is you probably need to have your long-term people talking to your short-term people. And uh, I, I've tried uh, in my 25 years to knit those two methodologies together. But at the end of the day, I'm just an intelligence analyst. I just go, huh, the world is full of uh, things I don't know and things my clients don't know. So when my clients have questions, I go out and I use the intelligence methodology and all we know about cognitive bias and decision sciences so that I can bring news that will probably surprise them and have some value and have them get emotionally angry at me and uh, take that out on me. And I'm not sure why I've done this for 25 years, but I can't think of anything else I want to do. <laughs> Great description. Well, there's a certain amount of sadomasochism that runs in the <clears throat> veins of the competitive intelligence analyst. I think you kind of have to to do it this long. Uh, and there's a you know gluttons for punishment aside. I think there is a there's a commitment there that I've noticed. You know, you and I have been friends for boy 20 years, maybe a little less than that. Whatever that whatever you call friends. Um, and I think. Uh, as I think of sort of our uh, partnership over the last decade and a half in particular, um, I think about the conversations that we've had and, you know, wide ranging all over the place. And I was actually trying to remember when I would have called you a friend, so to speak. And it's probably right before the great financial crisis of 08, 09, that kind of, uh, you know, territory in there, when I would come to think of you as a close friend. And as we were talking, you know, I was noticing that I'm sitting here on 40 acres of farmland. And part of my decision to buy a farm is based on conversations that you and I had 13, 14 years ago, uh, you know, on the future of the U.S. economy and what would be a durable store of capital. Um, and so I actually went out and looked at historically what is the most resilient uh, capital investment that doesn't necessarily grow at. 20% a year, but you know, it doesn't shrink at 20% a year until you get to the great financial crisis. And then, you know, you're not talking farmland there. And now I think today, fast forward to late 2021, uh, you've got guys like Bill Gates are buying up, you know, vast uh, hectares of farmland, not necessarily because he wants to go raise chickens like I do, uh, or grow hops for beer production or any of the other sundry amateur agriculture that uh, people like me 
you know, doing our spare time, not very successfully, but because he knows it's a durable store of value when uh, fiat currency might not be. And so I guess I've been looking forward to this conversation, uh, really, to give our audience a little bit of a taste of what to expect from an Eric Garland uh, encounter, uh, particularly if they're coming at it from the, the business world where you're dealing with these sort of uh, volatile and ambiguous signals about what's going to happen next. Um, and obviously, we are now about 18 months into a pandemic, uh, which is proving uh, globally pretty persistent. And how that uh, persists and evolves in the you know months ahead is going to really set the stage for our children's future. So with that kind of layup, um, I guess, tell me what's going to happen now. Uh, what happens next, Derek? Uh, Future Incorporated, uh, which is, by the way, a great book if you want to get a, a uh, taste of what Eric's incisive analysis will be like. Obviously, 15 years old or a little more, but at the same time, you know, kind of one of those perennial favorites that, um, you know, I keep at hand if I want to tell people about you. Well, I'm flattered. Um well, you know, just to tie some memes together there, you were talking about, uh, you know, buying up hops uh, or buying up land that you could grow hops on. Of course, my Future Inc., How Businesses Can Anticipate and Profit from What's Next, which uh, was published in late 2006. We looked at the future of the beer market because it's a fun case study. Um, and we didn't know the future, um, but we used the methodology to, to look at what is the future of beer, since it's a 5,000-year-old product that everyone seems to like. And we caused all sorts of havoc that one stupid time we tried outlawing it and put billions of dollars in the pocket of organized crime, which is another story. Um, but many of the, uh, while well, a lot of the content in the second half of the book about the future of beer isn't useful anymore because that future, for the most part, happened, um, the part one, the methodology, is still good because it's the same basic concepts of looking at trends, society, technology, economics, ecology, politics, asking what the implications of those trends are, talking to experts about what they think, putting together scenarios, and then talking to people about those scenarios. Um, you know, looking at the future of beer, we said, you know, there's, you know, the, the old mass market beer thing is probably done and craft beer is where it's at. And, you know, liquors going ahead and uh, you know, wine is becoming a thing. And in the years that followed that, all the big brands went in the direction of craft beers and, and you know, growth through. They realized they, they, they absolutely had no other growth strategy other than to buy uh, those breweries that were creating a crafted product and um, uh, mixed liquor sales took off and all the stuff we predicted in the book uh, came out. And uh, anyway. Um, but what we're saying, where are we going from here in general, strategically, not in terms of just liquor? Well, I'm going to say, where are we going? Uh, <laughs> this is probably the wrong question to ask, but I'll ask it anyway, uh, because you can parse this pretty. Where are we going as a civilization? Um, <laughs> you know, how is how is our civilization going to survive uh, the decade ahead, the 2020s? Um, and come out the other side in the 2030s with some semblance of, um, you know, the democratic republic that we currently live under. And there, I'll, I'll tell you to put your futurist hat on. And um, I don't know that you need to give me a forecast, a 10-year forecast, but paint a picture a little bit. Tell me a story about what you think is going to happen. No. Well, further to the, th the theme of this podcast, you know, if you want to know about the kind of weird stuff 
old timer Intel people like me and Eric talk about in our in our private time. It's this kind of esoteric stuff. Um, Because let's face it, you know, looking at you know finding stuff out about competitors is fairly easy after a while. It's you know after a while you go, wait a minute, this technology's coming on and the world's kind of crazy. What what's happening? So I'm going to give an answer that would be uh, that would be dignified on one of our phone calls. Uh, I would say we are racked in spasm right now as or the mythology underlying our thought processes, our identities, and particularly our institutions and how they're wired, we're racked in spasm as those slam into transparency. That we now have more evidence being created, um, not just for court cases, though there are plenty of those, not just for criminal prosecutions, though there are plenty of those going on right now and other forms of investigation, but just um of who we are as people of how our business works um of where our income comes from what our interests really are the digitization of society and particularly the adoption of mobile computing technologies that have a multitude of sensors on them which by the way in the futures field like i can tell you be about sitting there in the cubicles at coats and jarrett and basically designing out the iphone in the year 2000 now we you know we don't have the intellectual property on that, obviously, or you know I, we would be having this conversation in my villa somewhere, you know, Italy or Caribbean. But um, we looked at all the technologies that were coming in, we include you know touch panels, um, you know cellular telephony, chips, storage, um, you know GPS tracking stuff like that, and we said all this is you know we said eh, 2007 or 2008. You know, that's where the, the trend line crossed. And it's like, wow, you're going to have a device in your pocket that is seriously powerful and will allow a whole lot of tracking and surveillance. And um, I did by 2006 or seven, I was doing um, forecasts. We were so important for my, my clients that they allowed us to, uh, to release it. Like it's still on my, my slide share online about surveillance technologies. Um, and about how China would be using them differently than us and um, tracking us personally. Um, and all those forecasts have come out and then some. Um, but, you know, all of that radical transparency is is causing our whole, like every institution we have to, to be shaken to the ground. I think first, it, you know, it was individuals who were feeling the brunt of it in that you've got, um, let's look at the 2016 election and other elections uh, around the world. Not no, This isn't just a U.S.-centric thing, even though the election of Donald Trump was a, a big example because of foreign interference. But the same thing could be said in Brexit, in Afghanistan, and uh, you know, a variety of, of um, democratic processes. You know, the fact that we all got on Facebook in particular but not exclusively, but in particular, and talked about our habits, disclosed who our friends were, had conversations, um, indicated our mood, and we created this vast set of data that had never existed in a, you know, collected like that on a population in the world at any time, not ever. That got exfiltrated and it was uh, used by at least one foreign nation as near as we can tell. Um, the Russian Federation, though how much the United Arab Emirates got of it, how much Israel had of it, uh, and uh, China, you know, 
China, Korea, North or sorry, China, North Korea, Iran. There, there's they all had different little hustles in there, but the main one was Russia. Um, you know, they got to practice psychological operations in a way that no Stasi officer, like Vladimir Putin, is uh, had ever dreamed of. No KGB general or colonel had ever dreamed of that kind of a rich playing field and you know the intelligence community in 2016 you know said we cannot quote you know we are not qualified and we don't have the capacity to tell you exactly how minds changed but opinions were affected by this and um, behavior was atypical and or at the very least they did this why did they do it probably because it had a value that's one layer and we've been talking about that for you know, four or five years. Um, but it's funny as part of that scandal as like, wait a minute, you know, we had da- people were using data to craft opinions. Well, you know, it was not new to have that happen because the advertising profession is all about that and collecting as much data on you as possible. And uh, for that matter, the Obama uh, campaign of 2012 tried to use Facebook and other internet with those same kinds of profiles, um, you know, as much as possible. Um, I, I don't know the, the total extent, but it's a similar concept of, you know, fine slicing voting demographics, but that's been part of electioneering for a little while too. Um, Carl Rove was a master at that kind of a thing and Democrats get as good as they can. What was novel about it was it was a country that was not the United States that was inserting itself in that through an American company that has a whole lot of foreign capital in it. And, you know, we've been parsing that ever since of, of how, you know, how that's happened. What's interesting is as we investigate all of that, we look at the sheer, uh, the amount of evidence, the vast oceans of forensic court ready data that's frozen in Amber in computer servers and in the devices ourselves, we have the log files from the transfers of this information. You have the physical device itself. If you know anybody that does forensic computing and law enforcement, that's what you need to go to court. You get beyond allegations or screenshots and you go to, nope, nope, this device received this at this time. And you have that with financial transactions. You have that with uh, how people were targeted with advertising or, you know, who, who said what to whom. Um, a good example of this is purely in the organized crime space, but we um, it was revealed a few months back that there was a type of hardened, secure cellular telephone. Um, it was called the ANOM system, capital A, lowercase, N0M, ANOM. And it was used exclusively by top-end um, like bosses and lieutenants of organized cr- crime syndicates around the world. And they're like top capital regime, essentially. Um, About 13,000 of these phones, and the whole phone system was designed by the FBI. And it carbon copied a message of every single thing said on those phones straight to the FBI. And they got, so it was the second generation of this kind of technology that hadn't bitten them in the hindquarters. And they got so lax about it, they stopped using, a lot of these guys stopped using code words, apparently. And so they're like, hey, Frank, I'm in Amsterdam. How's it going where you are? Oh, I'm fine in Brazil. Thanks. When's the cocaine coming over? Well, it's coming by on Thursday. Will it be the regular boat? No, no, it's a second boat. It's this one. It's yellow. Here's the number. Thanks. I'll be looking forward to the cocaine. 
Um, <laughs> and every one of those messages sent straight to the Federal Bureau of Investigations. Combine that with Cypriot banks, Panama Papers, uh, FinCEN files from the U.S. Treasury, cryptocurrency transactions, which everyone thinks is of as anonymous, but the second you get the identity of the, the wallet it belongs to, it is the worst way to try and hide a transaction. All of those things have become this, you know, this rich area of discovery where whatever the hell you were trying to hide before, you know, if you've crossed over into this really um, tense space where some people tried to overthrow the United States democracy um, from without of the country and within it, um, that's made everybody very tense. Um, the system's got a lot of problems, but it's still functioning uh, by and large. And there's all these investigations going on that have never had this kind of evidence available. And when you think of how many, um, you know, how, how many institutions or businesses or political parties are built on a certain mythos, um, you know, I'll take the mob, for example, you know, you always needed a front business. Um, I watched The Godfather a lot lately. There's a heck of a lot to learn in those movies still. You know, uh, you know the Corleone still needed Jenko olive oil, right? <laughs> you know, it was their, their, their main business front. But of course, behind the scenes, that's not what they really do. They do other things, gambling, et cetera. Um, you know, we were in a place there where because of our information technology um, and other social factors and whatnot, um, you know, you could run a business like that and basically and get away with it. I mean, you'd get pinched once in a while, but, there, you know, the, my my ancestors, I'm half Italian, my ancestors had the, uh, had, had the decency to speak their lower Southern dialect of Italian that was basically incomprehensible, go out in a field away from any telephones or anyone else listening or any feds and have a conversation in the old dialect with some respect for the system, gosh darn it. And these guys are all out there. They're they're com they're committing crimes on WhatsApp and their iPhone and their hardened phone that was designed by the FBI, and they're just blathering away about all the stuff they're doing. And you know, you know, before you know, you, you had the RICO, uh, the racketeer influenced corrupt organizations act in 1970. Said, wait, 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 wait. You guys are all kind of in this together. But there's still been loopholes to get around admitting to. And here we have created global networks of organized crime, for example, or financial crime or whatever. Um, you know, this, by the way, not all of these examples have to be nasty. You know, of course, the Internet is, uh, you know, full of, you know, community communities of affinity of like, hey, if you want to know if you want to know every left handed uh, funeral director with a pilot's license, we we can get you that too. And you can all have like the best cocktail party. So, you know, these are just tools. Um, not every one of them is, you know, connected to people with malign intent, but, uh, we get, we do have a lot of, you know, people not doing exactly what they, not with a lot of integrity. They've gotten away with not having to have integrity and now they're busted, you know, and that could be a pension fund manager. It could be a mob boss. It could be an elected official or, you know, uh, you know, somebody who's trying to pass off a resume that really isn't theirs. And, you know, it's one thing when you have a scandal and it's another when you have like 7,000 scandals at once. And I think the current moment has been coming for a while. 
Um, and we're at this point where we kind of have to look at who we really are. And it's really uncomfortable. Like, you know, all right, let's say, you know, we all look politics, for example. We all want to throw the bastard out, get somebody better. And, you know, what if you find out that, you know, there are so many holes where it's like, wait a minute, your elected officials are not who you think they are. The, the judiciary is not who you think it is. Police aren't who you think they are. Uh, you know, what your kids have for breakfast? That might be bogus, too. Like, well, you know, there's only so much disillusionment that, that humans can take at any given time and kind of keep it together. And I think sometimes when you have total, in, throughout history, when you have total disillusionment, and you overthrow everything at once, that don't always work so good. It sounds good, you know, 22-year-olds who are all hot under the collar and, you know, want to get into that. But if you're a student of history and you look at, like, the French Revolution, which came, of course, after our revolution, Louis, you know, the French financed it, and they spent so much time and energy turning Benjamin Franklin and Tom Paine and guys like that into, rock, like, literal rock stars over there, famous and selling books and you know, going out to dinner with hot chicks and, you know, everything the 18th century had to offer because they loved rubbing their English adversaries' noses in the fact that, you know, our, uh, uh, you know, that, that their, their own colonists overthrew them. They loved that. And they printed, they translated all their books and printed them and handed them out. And all the people who were under the same kind of yoke were like, yeah, that sounds, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Being in charge of your own stuff. That, yes, yes, and being abused. Yeah, that sounds exactly right. So, you know, they have the uh, the revolution because it's just as they're starting to go, wait a minute, Paris stinks too much of horse manure and human manure here. We need better sanitation. We need we need infrastructure week, if you will. Um, you know, we need to, and it was 1788, the king started doling money out to do infrastructure in, in Paris in particular. And in 1789, they had a huge heat, heat wave. All this, all the wheat died, uh, cost of food got jacked up, and it was like 100 degrees at night in Paris, which never is. And the whole place blew up. And, you know, they uh, they got some revenge early on on some people, that, you know, maybe had it coming morally. But when they started ripping, I mean, they, they ripped up the calendar. They turned Notre Dame into the cult or the, uh, the Temple of Reason. Um and, uh, you know, if you had been a librarian who had been charging too many uh, late fees for books, they put they cut your head off. I mean, when they when they lost faith in institutions like all all around, they're like, get rid of the monarchy, the church, the this, the that, the calendar, the everything. Are we there? Um, Are we there now? No. And I hope, you know, I, I'm not looking forward to that uh, if we do. Um, I think, you know, you know, if the. You know, by the time this airs, you know, we might have a lot more information on how uh, we've chosen to prosecute the crimes of uh, January 6th uh, when people rushed the, the Capitol building armed and killed policemen and all that. I think if we had thrown that election into um, disarray, uh, I think we could have been very close to it. And um, we have a lot better weaponry on this soil than, than those guys did uh, back then. So uh, that, you know, I'm pretty glad that. I'm not opining uh, from that scenario, but um, so just to interject again, I think you know the. I think we talked about this that people were all excited about 2021 because 2020 sucked so bad, and 2021's like hold my beer. 
2020. Because uh, 2021, you know, if you sort of retrospect on the last, what is it, 10 months in now, um, it's been kind of rocky in 2021. And 2022 is right around the corner. We've got a lot of rocky uh, happening here. And a lot of it, um, you know, ask yourself, boy, I'd like to buy a new set of living room furniture, or I would like to, um, you know, get a steak, uh, or any of the other creature comforts that <laughs> our American lifestyle <laughs> so accustomed to. But, you know, you order a set of living room furniture, and it's going to be, we'll see in 2023, maybe. Uh, so uh, yeah. there's, there's a lot happening, you know, macro environmentally, to use the, you know, the, the structure of the trends that are coiling around mm -hmm. us, which lead me to suspect that there are people who have lost faith in uh, the institutions, and I'll say in, in particular, the authorities of those institutions who are dictating how we should operate. And, you know, speaking as an entrepreneur, um, there are, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity that'll come out of that chaos, but man, I don't want it to be out in the open because <laughs> uh, there's, there's a tremendous amount of rent seeking that will happen on anything that's done out in the open. So to my point, because we now have a de facto surveillance society, and I think that's part of your, mm -hmm. your conversation there earlier. There is an expectation that everything I'm doing is under surveillance. Therefore, if I want privacy, I better make sure I've taken steps to ensure that that privacy is not the FBI's, you know, planted uh, telephony system that I've got such high trust in that I don't even speak in code anymore. Um, and you see that, I think, happening in the communications infrastructure that has now been put in place, particularly when you've got you know, the government asking the telecom providers to, you know, begin to sift and winnow on private text messages and, and things that we had an expectation of privacy around as little as, I don't know, six months ago. I, I had an expectation of privacy around the text messages I might send to my brother, Derek, but I don't any longer. I don't expect those to be private. Um, and in fact, if I want to have a conversation with Derek about something that I want to keep private, boy, we're leaving our electronics in the car and we're going to go out in the cornfield, as you describe, and probably talk in low, you know, Hanyak, which is the dialect of uh, Wisconsin farm boys. So anyway. That's, uh, that's northern Absolutely. Wisconsin dialect Hanyak. It's, it's actually Hanyak. a thing. Oh, yeah. it's, upper, it's upper Hanyak in the southern part of the state. <laughs> It's upper, upper Hanyak. Can you do a little, have you done Hanyak for your audience? If I, if I did that, you'd be able to reverse engineer the translation. Oh, whoa, whoa. No. I'm not trying to bust anyone's OPSEC. Okay, no problem. Um, yep, you know, Vermont, we can do that too, if you want. You know. right. um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's, if you want to traffic cocaine, you know, using electronics, not a good, you know, it's, it's tough. It's getting tougher. I mean, so... Uh, you know, right there, dangerous business always has been. Um, but for the rest of us just trying to get through, um, you know, further to what people's expectations, you know, were, well, wait a minute, I thought I had an expectation of, of privacy. Well, did you? Because, you know, we've now learned about Facebook, but, you know, when I talk to, um, uh, you know, I want to be careful not to 
uh, defame or make assumptions about any other corporations that I actually have plenty of information that would substantiate this. But like Facebook is one set of data, right? Um, and everyone's kind of, uh, you know, they're tripping on that set of data haven't been out there. But it assumes that there's going to be a rule of law based set of governance of corporations that run the back end databases. Um, and most people don't even know what that means. They don't know what the the core databases and mainframes and things that un they underlie the infrastructure that we might have heard about that underpins the thing that the average person has heard about that makes our daily life possible. And they don't realize the power of, you know, those lower databases and, in, in, you know, being able to collate everything about your life. And, um, you know, also, as we have these networks go through, um, you know, the, the Internet is built for access and not for security. And you find out things about, like, for example, um, Israel's NSO group selling its Pegasus software to the United Nation, uh, the United Arab Emirates and many, many other dictatorships. And I think even some organized crime syndicates where they can hack into iPhones and just about anything else they want without, uh, you know, their zero click um, ha or, you know, uh, um, what am I thinking that frailty, um, um, their, their back door into your phone, which was comprehensive. It was like every bit of data on it, your, you know, any keystrokes you make, your location data, it was essentially a, a FISA warrant from the U.S. intelligence community in a box handed to just about anyone. So even if you thought your own government wouldn't do something like that, which generally they're about the only, uh, you know, organization that has any really firm laws uh, against that kind of surveillance um, without a court, you know, court warrant, um, these other countries don't have that. And these corporations don't necessarily have that. And I think as we learn more about the role of corporations in some of uh, these anti-democratic, you know, movements of recent, I mean, that's going to shake a lot of people's confidence because, you know, I mean, this internet thing is cool. And, um, and using credit cards is cool. And providing capital with, you know, greater ease can be cool. And it's also got a flip side, you know, that also can let in foreign capital to finance your, uh, your elections. And it can also let your personal conversations with your friends out to some, out to some foreign government possibly that uh, wants a profile on you, even if, whether they're looking at you now or not, they just want it. Um, you know, my understanding is China's, uh, you know, goal has been to get a, a profile, including DNA on every human being on earth. Why? They just want it. And, you know, is, you know, well, what about international law? Well, that's my master's degree is in international affairs, technology policy. And on the first two parts of the international affairs part, there is no such thing as international law. And when it breaks down, when, when assumptions break down and associations break down as, um, our trust recedes very quickly with uh, the, the full on dictatorships of the world, um, Russia, China, Saudi being our main uh, our main competitors out there that, you know, after 30 years of trying to engage with them post fall of the Berlin wall, which was, I'm, I'm not saying it was necessarily a bad decision because it's like, do you want to engage as competitors right away or as partners, you know, with competing interests, you know, uh, you know, it's, 
you know, do you do you want to be preparing for how to merge the values of China and the United States and Canada, uh, or do you want to be preparing for landing craft at Vancouver and, and San Diego and San Francisco? Which would you like? Well, in 1990, that wasn't very, you know, that wasn't entirely clear. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it was Pollyanna-ish, uh, you know, uh, optimism but i'm sure it'll be great and don't worry you know these inside you know everybody in these other countries you know, lives a little american as opposed to you're talking about a two or three thousand year old culture that may have their own plans um you know i remember talking to people about the future of that relationship in dc in 2000 and um the innocence and ignorance of some of the senior executives as as far as china and what it wanted and they're like oh no you know they want to be like us like they really like being them. Have you ever asked them? Like they've convinced you that they want to be like you, and that's that's the mind game that they're playing. Is they've got you thinking that. Well, and and guys, for the three of us, we've all had to read Sun Tzu, right? You know, business consultancy in the eighties, nineties, two thousands. Everybody, everybody. We, and Eric Johnson reaches for his personal copy. I was going no, not Sun Tzu. I've been reading this. Uh, so 1998. Oh, 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 that's the one. That unrestricted warfare by those two uh, PLA generals. Yang and Wang Xiang Tsui, I think. That's a right tones on that, that, but that's a page turner. So they're like, my uh, weaponry. You want to talk about <laughs> futurism uh, and sort of what, how to create, how to predict the future by creating it. Um, this is a book by two PLA generals, obviously from about 22 years ago or so, where much of the problems that we are experiencing in our society today uh, are described in vague detail uh, and how to hack America and, and get, uh -huh. America, <laughs> get America to fight a restricted war while we fight an unrestricted war. And that, I think, is why I invoke that psychology is because it's all about the mind. It's all about how the American mind and, and the Chinese mind uh, interpret reality in different ways. And in fact, you know, it's, you're probably the only person, by the way, Mr. Garland, I can talk about uh, neurochemistry with at 7.30 in the morning. But as we were sort of getting ready to hop on here, I said the purpose of this podcast is about branding. It's about oxytocin. We're trying to invoke the oxytocin hormonal effect of what it's like to be friends with the Johnson brothers, right? Versus other media that we publish, which is very different. Traditional media and advertising, by the way, is designed to produce cortisol, which is yeah. stress, to create yeah, yeah. a problem Here. that then you offer a solution. And the quickest way the three quickest ways to uh, deplete cortisol from your neurotransmitters are serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin. And what are the three quickest ways to do that? Go to the refrigerator and get out something, you know, fat and carby, drink alcohol, or go shopping. Those are the quickest ways. There are other ways to, uh, you know, defray cortisol in your neurotransmitter system, uh, but those are the quickest and that's how that's how we are manipulated as human animals. We can we, we get hacked hundreds of times a day and hundreds of times a day. We respond in totally predictable ways. And I think that's what we're realizing, you know, as we think about 
the science behind how, you know, we are manipulated and how we can stop that, how we can retrain ourselves to not be manipulated. And in fact, do things that are surprising um, and things that are unexpected. And, you know, the, uh, the worst probably framework for the CI world, and it's, I've now got newfound respect for it, is Boyd's OODA loop. And why do I have new, newfound respect for it is because of Donald Trump, quite candidly. Donald Trump was inside everybody else's OODA loop most days of the week. He was so volatile that he could switch gears and you'd be back at observe. Anyone who was competitive yes. with Donald Trump, beautiful, yeah, he'd zig when everybody's zagging, and you're back to observe Orient again. It's a paralyzed uh-huh. competition because of how his volatility, and that that became a competitive advantage designed for the American media cycle. Could 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 you just uh, um, blow um, you know expand out Uda Loop for because I'd love to seg I'd love to uh, yeah. get a, a clip of this. So, so what's Uda stand for again? Observe, orient, decide, and act. Observe is notice around you what your battle space is. And this is uh, Boyd, who really, he, he was a Korean fighter pilot in the Korean War, and realized that in single combat, and which is how Donald Trump looks at politics, by the way, in single combat, you have to be faster than your opponent and shoot your opponent out of the sky, or he will shoot you out of the sky. And that's, it's very predictable how that's going to go. So observe, what is my macro environment? Orient, where am I relative to my competitor or adversary? Decide, in other words, how will I engage the adversary in order to produce a kill rather than them produce a kill? And then act. When do I pull the trigger? Under what circumstance? How far do I lead my target You know, with my machine guns, et cetera? And if you think about how American politics has been accelerated into the UDA era. That's essentially mm-hmm. what Donald Trump did to uh, to the Democratic Republic of the United States of America is he created such volatility that anyone who wanted to keep up had to move faster than him. And so anyway, political philosophy um, is tied. How do we take advantage of this psychology behind this? And, and in fact, I'll even go so far as to say the neurochemistry that underlies all of this stuff, knowing that that's how we're manipulated. Well, and that, and that's, you know, that's frankly why we need, you know, senior intelligence people who get beyond like, I found the piece of information. I'm right. And you're wrong. I'm right. I tell all my students, there's nothing more worthless than being right in the world. Um, You know, but getting onto the, all right, we're being our you know our brain chemistry is being hacked here, and um, you know it's funny uh, you mentioned you know Trump's effect on that. This is how my intelligence career got uh, you know a brand new side path as I go out on Twitter and start explaining. Well, hey guys, we should probably talk about Russian intelligence and uh, psychological warfare if we're going to talk about this election, which record scratch. Uh, you know, that changed the dialogue a lot and was not the dialogue that a bunch of people wanted. Um, and so I ended up basically, I guess, trying to re, you know, get people on the right OODA loop and go, no, you know, no, you're being distracted by this, this latest thing. No, no, Jared and Ivanka are not moderating influences. 
let's look at why these guys wanted to they say they hate muslims i guess because they're stopping the muslims from coming into the airport for like five seconds but they're working on the largest arms transfer to the saudi arabia in the history of the united states military can we talk about that like where our cybersecurity? why is that going to 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 saudi arabia why, why do we need to sell them fighter planes you know since well he's a racist and you know we are well, we observe. We got to right. We get back up, and well, we got to observe this next thing. And you know that was a propagandistic organization. Steve Bannon was a master propagandist who learned a ton from Vladislav Surkov, who was Putin's right hand man for that stuff, and Valery Gerasimov, the uh, the head of the GRU, uh, the Russian intelligence service, from you know the main directorate of military intelligence, where. He knew all about that, and his thing was hybrid warfare, warfare all over the place, and Surkov was all about the, you know, just flood the information battle space with so much crap that it doesn't matter that it's low quality. It matters that it stops decisions from happening because everybody's well, switching topics. And on the, on the dopaminergic... Confuse them What's and slow them, down, slow them down and confuse them so that no action is taken. They, they must be paralyzed because speed is at such a premium. Sorry to interrupt, but point being that from in terms of the actionability part of this, you need to slow your adversary down to the point at which you can deliver a kill shot. You know, to extend the UDA analogy back to this, you you need to to gain superiority. You must put your competitor at such a disadvantage that they don't even know really what's going on most days of the week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and you know, and get them off of what you know from thinking about the strategy that might work most optimally for them, and get them to just observe the battle space, which is fascinating because. It's different than the traditional psyop of like demoralization, which is important too. There have been plenty of uh, malign actors out there trying to demoralize. Oh, that's it. This guy's bad. He's the end of the Republic. Oh, and if you get somebody new, that would be, or if Robert Mueller's report comes out, is going to solve everything. Oh no, it didn't immediately solve everything because we all know things in the federal government level move like every two weeks, something, you know, tectonic happens, which is, I was there for 12 years. That's, uh, is a great psyop is like you be demoralized. Oh, nothing's ever going to work. But that's not the only thing they did um, because the demoralization is very classic military psyop. It, it was the nonsense was you know was even more important and i noticed being a twitter there was a regular pattern like every time a major important news story that would actually lead somewhere directly to like a state or federal prosecution under a statute that actually is clear for trump or one of his guys trump would come out on twitter and misspell something or say something quote completely ridiculous because some of the stuff that he said that was ridiculous was actually classified stuff that was absolutely correct <laughs> but it's a longer conversation but he would misspell something dumb and all the liberals would go ha 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 ha, ha. it is important what well, you know because they're wanting to relieve the stress the cortisol exactly. of this situation and they're like i'm gonna you know have some humor about this you know this guy with, you know, a, a dead orange weasel on his head. Ha ha ha. He looks funny. He's dumb. And it's like, I, I would be out there. Hey, 
focus. Who know what do you know? And I would point out, I go, do you realize that every time this kind of headline comes out, five hours later he misspells something, and you all take two hours off on Twitter to not download that PDF, but to make fun of his spelling? And ever and people would say, but we can focus on both at the same time. It's like, no, you can't. No, they can't. Yeah. That's the hack. The mind hack is that the you you are overwhelmed by your emotional desire to fight. It's fight or flight in that respect. And I think that's the thing about the value of intelligence to the world is dispassion. We are dispassionate about the choices that need to be made. And as a consequence of not having passion around it, and and most people, by the way, I would say glorify the passion part because it makes them feel better. um, It's palliative, you know, and that's, you know, mm-hmm. I've been talking about palliative versus predictive for, you know, decade and a half. The notion that the actions that you are about to pursue will make you feel better about your terrible condition versus you are going to disinvest yourself of all this passion that it will ultimately mislead you so you can parse reality. Because that's really what intelligence does. Intelligence parses the singular truth from all of its many perspectives, which back to where we started, that's what human is for. Human is to aggregate and then curate the perspectives on true reality so that contradictory mm-hmm. statements that appear to be true are merely perspectives on the same reality that, that are paradoxical. Uh, you, and the rationalization and reconciliation of those contradictions, that's a huge, huge part of the analysis process. How can both black and white describe that reality? How can it be both of those things at the same time? And because you see it from different points of view, you know, you, you, have, you have a preset, uh, you know, collection of assumptions by which you're evaluating that reality. And I have something mm-hmm. different and they're, they're not incorrect. They're not necessarily, they don't cancel each other out. They give higher resolution. So to take your framework of dopamine, norepinephrine, uh, oxytocin, and otherwise, um, two thoughts come to mind. One, I'd just like to say to the audience, um, when we talk about dispassion, and if we're talking about branding as for hanging out with Aurora WDC, Reconverge, the Johnson Brothers, like there's there are no parties as fun as our Intel conferences and our hangs after, you know, a day of working together. That's all the passion. Group. That's where all the passion comes back is when you're hanging out as friends. These are the, I mean, I'm sorry. One of the things that has kept me in this sadomasochistic world of intelligence is that my direct colleagues, my peers that I, that, you know, that work at the same level as me are the greatest, funniest, most compassionate, best human beings I've ever met in the world. I'm throwing you should come to our parties as soon as the plague isn't around. Um, <laughs> or virtual parties or our, our podcast, you know, uh, and you'll, it'll be nothing but, you know, love and karaoke and all that. And the next morning, um, you know, when we get back to work or let's, let's give it actually after those parties, let's give it like 48 hours for everything to re-regulate. Um, you know, would you guys agree with me that some of the stuff that we work on would be scary to the average person. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt about it. 
Derek, I'm, I mean, I'm if, muted. Am I still I mean, muted? Or can you hear you're me? Un, you're unmuted, but I noticed you're yeah. unmuted around this. Yeah. No, I, I think it. I think to be an intelligence analyst takes a certain type of uh, set of characteristics that allow you to be dispassionate about stuff. And I'm, I'm guilty as charged. I get super passionate. My brother, Eric knows this, Eric Garland, you know this, I get super passionate about many, many things. And I've had to train myself to kind of step back from that passion in order to have a, a uh, little bit better way of just dealing with and coping with the realities that's being put in front of me, you know, especially when I'm in a client scenario you know, helping a client kind of think through some things. Um, finish your thought. And then I want to take you to your book. A couple of questions I've got for you about the book that came out in 13, Eric Garland, but finish your thought first. So, um, you know, I was just thinking some of the stuff that we work on is, um, you know, would be terrifying for, for folks. Um, you know, my background in DC, you know, I work for people that worked on nukes. And the and my whole my my whole branch of intelligence, the reason we needed technology forecasting is because um, Herman Kahn at the Rand Corporation um, and his colleagues, which included Joe's, Joseph Coates, who I worked with, they realized that we had you know innovated technologically to a point. You know, we were able to destroy the world. We had finally, you know, we had finally reached a point in terms of uh, technological development where we could kill everyone all at once. And if you looked at military strategy from Leonidas in the 300 on up to basically World War II, you were looking at heavy cavalry, infantry, and some forms of, uh, of projectiles, um, artillery. And you know, between 1920 and 1950, that technology expanded on the artillery front to be able to kill all of humanity at once. And that was, that was the first really unprecedented thing. Um, you know, even though there were the, the horrors of chemical war in World War One, nukes were different. So we had to look f forward because they realized, wait a minute, there are multiple scenarios in here where we're all dead. So we need to go out to the worst of them and if you t read Herman Kahn's non-classified book on thermonuclear war, um, it scared the hell out of people, which was good. It's what he intended. Um, right. And, you know, you know what I found uh, is, you know, that what separates intelligence analysts out, the real ones, is we can look at something that is really threatening to us personally. And, you know, lots of us have people we love. We have kids that we hope to have the next, you know, take over this civilization. And so this is scary, not just for us, but, you know, we're scared to leave behind some of these futures for our kids, which is why we, um, why we study them. And, you know, the only way I think you can get at that is if you look uh, at, I know that, that book from the People's Liberation Army from 1998 when those uh, PLA generals got a little loose-lipped and they're like, look, we see a future for China where let's say we let out some bioweapons and that just cleaned out a whole bunch of North America, all that farmland, boy, that worked out for China, great. That's a good breadbasket. And then, you know, we plowed ahead with giving them surveillance technology after that and like th those voices got a little quieter after like, shh, inside voice on that one. But, you know, 
you know, and I'm not uh, on this podcast declaring um, COVID-19 to have been a bioweapon, but um, let's say there were such a thing. Um, the Chinese have have already said in you know openly that that would be part of their national strategy. Not their entire government said that. That was a kind of a that was a couple important players. But once you know that's possible, and many of my colleagues have known that's possible for years, and that's in 2010, Obama started a pandemic uh, group on the National Security Council. They started stockpiling ventilators. You know, you you know when you know some of the nasty things that some of our colleagues have to think of. You know, you've you know makes you want to you know run out naked into traffic sometimes but you know part of part of what we do is like you know how and i think this is something i hope we talk about as a community over time is like how do you manage the stress of analysts over time so that they can do the absolute um you know the absolutely nesta yeah i know you're afraid you're going to die from this or you're now you're you're now so full of knowledge about what's possible um you know some of my colleagues in dc we talk we talk about team cry and team puke that when somebody comes up to temperature with their first security briefing of any seriousness and they realize the world they actually live in not the one they thought they live in that uh, about 95% of them vomit and 5% cry. I was team cry. I almost doubled in 2018, you know, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, how do we, how do we manage that for our, for our own community? Yeah. First of all, um, but, then, but this, this thing we're talking about psyops being a worldwide phenomenon now and realizing like, wait a minute, people are, you know, are taking this research and they're figuring out, oh, they're figuring out how to trigger our cortisol, our, our dopamine, our, uh, our serotonin We're dumping. Some nations are dumping a hell of a lot of fentanyl into countries because you know, the one way quicker than mashed potatoes to serotonin is morphine derivatives. Yeah. Right. And, uh, the one to the quickest way to, to dopamine, there's winning at a slot machine and there's cocaine. Um, and you know, you know, that people are onto that and that they are able to hack mass populations into making decisions that they might not otherwise make, um, also known as reflexive control theory in Russian military science. Well, you know, we, you know, it seems like the, the best way we can help inoculate our civilization from that is talking about it and going, did you know that people are, you know, turning your crank all the time? You know, don't take, I think maybe our grandparents, great grandparents generation, kind of knew this instinctively, right? Because they, you know, things couldn't get out of hand on a global scale, world wars notwithstanding, you know, but, you know, madness of crowds happen in smaller groups. And it's like, don't take any wooden nickels. You know, yeah. they tell, you know, snake oil salesman comes to town. Well, ain't no free lunch. You know, they would tell us like, people are going to hack your, you know, your guts and your brain and your, and your passions and your instinct. They warned us, and now this is just you know much more mechanized. I think. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Uh, and you know, I think that's the thing that I will take away from this conversation, Eric, is that I think we, for the first time, at least in this podcast, running into the fog together, uh, we expose the neurochemistry element of how people are brainwashed and misled by those who do not have their best interests in heart and need them to comply uh, and to be directed and be authoritarian 
for lack of a better word. And that's actually the, the more appropriate dichotomy these days. And that's maybe fodder for our next conversation. Uh, and Derek, I'll let you take us home you know, from here. But the notion of left-right is not the right dichotomy. It's authoritarian and libertarian, for lack of a better word, uh, with a small L, since I'm not much of a joiner. Uh, and I would even go as far as to say, I'm really more of a constitutional anarchist uh, after this last election cycle. I'm libertarian's a little too touchy feely uh, for me. And, you know, that's the that's the thing about, uh, you know, freedom is uh, my my freedoms exist on the basis of my uh, independence. And, and so I'll even go so far as to say self-reliance, my dependence on anything outside of my ability to produce it. And that's really the bottom line why you see a tractor sitting here is if I need to grow my own food, I can. If I need to harvest the dandelion leaves from my backyard, I've got a cookbook on, you know, 101 ways to eat dandelions. So that, that, not that that's going to happen anytime soon, but to your point around how do we handle the fear as analysts and help our clients to handle the fear, we have to be prepared to stare into the void until it stares back and then to lock eyes with the void and not flinch. Uh, on that note, Derek, kid brother, final points, take us home. To our listeners, I am, I am far and away the dumbest of the three members of this particular podcast. These two guys, my two brothers, Eric and Eric, could talk about this stuff for literally hours and hours, and we're about an hour deep into this conversation now. And I wanna take you back, Eric Garland, to what Amazon provides is the description of your book. You sold a lot of these books, right? Came out in January, 2013. Can you give our listeners some sense, some, some magnitude of like uh, how popular this book with, was? And I, I get it that I'm asking you to sort of throw it a little bit upon yourself and in, in that answer. Which, which book is that? Future Inc. Oh, okay. Um, Future Inc. was 2007. And, and uh, what's the question? Like, how, how does it... Uh... Well, Amazon Amazon seems to think it was 2013, but... Um, uh, you know what? I, might have, I, I may have taken the digital rights back and, and published it under my own okay. auspices then. Um, so, you know, what, how many what's Amazon? How many copies of Future Inc. did you... Did you get out there? I, it's in the it's in the thousands, and it was it was translated into multiple languages. It's in um, Mandarin Chinese, Korean, Bahasa Indonesian. Um, an Iranian woman asked, uh, wrote, and asked if she could uh, assure that the Iranian people could have the pearls of my wisdom, and asked my permission. It was not a business arrangement, but would it be okay if I translated this into Persian? I'm like, have at. <laughs> I, you know, you're all sanctioned, so I can't take any bank transfers or anything, but, you know, you know, yeah. what, you know what was the risk there? Like, okay, you know, if you want, your English seems fine. But um, so, you know, I know it's it, it's been used as a methodology in corporations and, and governments now for, for over 10 years. Um, at uh, you know the border uh, border directors level, prime ministers and and whatnot, and I hope regular people. My my whole point with that book was this stuff is is not that hard, and I think one of the things that um, that turns people off from intelligence and intelligence methodology is an inherently like semi dangerous view of um, you know cloak and dagger. Which, you know, we have colleagues that do that, but that's, you know, it's another thing. Um, but the, the basic uh, the basic 
important elements of intelligence mindset is curiosity and a little bit of methodology, which is like, you know, when I said, well, pick your time frame, you know, pick your subject. Now let's look at the system it belongs to. Really think about all the parts that go into that. That's systems analysis. Then trends. Can you name three trends? Can you name three things that are 10% more than they used to or 100% more than they used to be? How long ago? Get a few of those together. Ask these kinds of questions and then ask what the future might look like. And here's how you put together those stories and reminded people that, um, you know, we don't understand the uh, um, abstract thought until age eight or so. You know, please de uh, describe all the parts in a dog. You're eight or nine before, on average for somebody to be able to do that cognitively. You're two and you can tell a story. We go to grandma's and the doggies there. I love the doggy. You've got, you've got main characters, you've got a place. And so narrative is way more dug into our, our psyche than, uh, than abstraction. And so that's how you need to tell your scenarios about the future. Like you're talking to a four-year-old. Um, and so, um, you know, that, you know, none of that's really that hard. It's just, here's how we do it. The, the hard stuff is, as we have found as colleagues over the years in different, you know, circumstances, some of them more humorous than, than the rest, I find that 5% of my work is the stuff in Future Inc. And the 95% is this like grief counselor, family dynamics therapist, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. I want to read for our audience just a, a little snippet from Amazon. I won't get into the debate around when Amazon took this back in and you self-published and all this other stuff that, you know, I'll, I'll leave that for you to, to describe, you know, out there in the social social world, but the description on Amazon for your book, Future Inc., uh, reads as follows. In the next 50 years, new technologies shifting global economics and many other factors will present innumerable changes for business and society to navigate. I think we've talked about a good share of that uh, basis here today. Going on, starting now, leaders need to be more flexible, responsive, and decisive than ever before. Unfortunately, most people are not trained in this type of critical thinking required to anticipate what lies ahead. This groundbreaking book will change that. Future, futuring is not a matter of tea leaves and crystal balls. It is a rigorous science based on time-tested analytical methods. Futuring translates the proven techniques of professional futurists into accessible language and shows how to, one, identify what is and what isn't changing at a given time, and two, how even small changes will affect whole businesses. And so that's a little bit of a taste of the feast to come for those of you listening to this podcast, um, maybe considering yourselves, as Eric Garland mentioned in the earliest part of this podcast an hour ago, as at the end of the day, I'm still an intelligence analyst. It's not something, it's not a field to be intimidated by. Yes, there's some fog to navigate and we've all been through it. I continue to go through it. Um, I know we all do, but the fact is there's, there's plenty of science out there, plenty of proven techniques that work. And the, the, the role of, I'm going to call it scenario planning, competitive futuring. There's, I think you could mix those, those terms and you've got time horizons that might be anywhere from five to 20 years out. And I would argue that depending on the industry or the vertical you operate in, sometimes that's appropriate. You know, in other words, heavy capital expenditure, heavy R&D types of industries, you know, five to 20 is, is probably pretty good. In most tech spaces where it just, frankly, the, the pace is a lot quicker. I don't know that you can get away with thinking in time horizons of that length. 
we'll save that for another podcast to debate. But the fact is, there's a great book out there for you listeners that Garland wrote many years ago called Future Inc. And I hope that you'll go check it out. Eric Garland, as we keep wrapping up here, uh, how do people communicate with you out there in the world? You know, what's the best way to, to connect with you if we have a listener that wants to uh, get to know you better or connect or learn some of your wisdom and have you, uh, have you teach them? My latest analysis will usually these days be on twitter.com slash Eric Garland, E-R-I-C-G-A-R-L-A-N-D. Then um, my personal website's ericgarland.co and um, my consultancy, competitivefutures.com. Awesome. Well, thank you, brother, for being on here. Back to my actual brother, Eric Johnson. Um, again, I, first time we've had to kind of had to do this. And I actually, so recording again, the uh, the 11th of October, 2021, believe it or not, my youngest daughter had a soccer game. Her name is Rain, by the way, R-A-I-N-E. And there's two teams her age level in my little town. She plays on the spirit team. And ordinarily, you know, it's great. I, I'm cheering, go Rain, you know, spirit team. Well, guess what happened last night? There was a scrimmage and we were playing the other team from our little village. And that team's name happened to be Rain, spelled R-E-I-G-N. So I had to totally change the way in which I cheered. And <laughs> all of a sudden I was like, with my eight-year-old daughter, I'm like, come on, Johnson, get after it. <laughs> so Johnson, get after, get, get after it and bring us home once and for all with this great conversation. Yeah, I'll just say, uh, if you're looking for a keynote speaker, uh, Mr. Garland is a fantastic uh, choice for that. And uh, he can make your audience... Uh, spellbound uh, by the trends in your industry and reveal for them things that they don't even know are there. I think that's, you know, that's how I'll leave it is uh, intelligence isn't necessarily about always having all the answers, uh, but having all the right questions and being willing to question even those things that might be demoralizing or scary or hard. Uh, those are the most important questions that people just don't want to address because they're icky. Uh, intelligence analysts have to have a not only a you know tolerance for that, but a bit of an appetite as well. So final words for the running into the fog audience, Mr. Garland. Come hang out with us. The stuff might be scary, but there's a hell of a party at the end of it. Right on. Well, then, Eric, I'll just thank you once again for being on Running Into the Fog with the Johnson Brothers. Derek, uh, always a pleasure and can't wait for the next one. Uh, we'll, t we'll leave it there today and uh, hopefully you all learned something from this and we'll go out and find Mr. Garland, uh, Eric Garland on Twitter, etc. Bye you'll be listening. You'll be listening to this right uh, as Valentine's Day of 2022 rolls on. So happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Have a great week. Love, love from Running Into the Fog.